Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. This live recording is made possible by the generous donation and support of our subscribers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org, and you can make your online donation anytime. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. So um, we've been working through the covenant and looking at um, right from the beginning of creation and God's covenant in creation all the way through. And now we're looking at what we call the Noahic covenant or the covenant with Noah. And um, that's our, our English way of saying his name, Noah. So really it's more of a after all sound there and there's a reason why we want to know that that will come up later on so the big picture is um, of Adam and Eve and we want to look at where we are with Adam and Eve but God loves mankind and we see that in his creation of Adam and Eve and um, even though Adam and Eve sinned by eating up the fruits that they were not to eat of it wasn't the fruit that was so much the issue was that they God. That was the issue. And even though they sinned that they were not what um, they should have been, God in his grace and his mercy gave them a promise, even in the midst of the fall. So I know for some of us, when somebody does us harm, if we even forgive them, it takes us a while. But even in the midst of this terrible thing that happens, God gives them a promise. And he gives them a promise to send them a redeemer, even through the seed of Adam and Eve. So um, we're going to see as we look through the progression of mankind, and particularly today as we're focusing on the flood, and we've got like all these millions of people now brought down to the single family of eight, that God maintains that promise to Adam and Eve, because he keeps the seed of Adam and Eve right through the flood. And so that promise of a Redeemer that will come through Eve, who um, now is fallen. That's one thing that we always want to remember throughout the scriptures, is how God loves mankind, and how he has promised the Redeemer. And we see that the theme throughout scriptures is the story of creation and redemption. Creation, the fall, and redemption, and eventually the consummation of the kingdom of God. So that's the one thing. But we see in the fall also how much Satan hates God. And because he hates God, he hates anything that God loves. And God loves mankind. So Satan is going to be after the seed of man. He's going to be trying to destroy all of mankind. So now God has made this promise to Adam and Eve that he will bring a redeemer that Satan is going to be against that and opposed to that and trying to kill mankind so that God cannot fulfill that promise. And that will be his complete focus in all these thousands of years is to destroy what God loves. So um, after we see, after we have uh, Adam and Eve, we move right into Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. So the fall is chapter 3 and in chapter 4 we have the account of Cain and Abel. And there will always be those now 
on earth that will choose to believe Satan instead of believing God. That will always be the thing. And the thing to ask ourselves is do we believe God or Satan? Those are the only two choices. And it's one or the other. So Satan uses the deception to destroy what God loves. And he's very good at deceiving, and he does deceive us. And there are plenty of times all of us here have been deceived. And thankfully, I hope for you that you know God has you know set you back on the right path again. So that does happen. But I just want to read this passage to you from John, uh, first John, rather the letter to John, first John chapter three, verse twelve. And talking about the story of Cain and Abel, the account of Cain and Abel. Not as Cain, he's been talking about um, the message, not as Cain, who was of the evil one. So there we have it. Cain was of Satan. He believed Satan, he didn't believe God. That marked his life. And so he was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was of Satan and he was after Abel because Abel was righteous before God. And so um, let's look back at that account in Genesis chapter 4. I'm just going to quickly look at it because I want to move into the story of Noah. Looking at Genesis 4, Cain and Abel um, were the first children of Adam and Eve after the fall. They had no children before the fall, so there's none that are born sort of of that clean nature of, of Adam that was originally there. They're all born from Adam's fallen state, which is why that's where original sin comes from. They were all born out of this fallen Adam. And so um, they had Cain first, and then she had, then he had Abel. And it says that Abel was the keeper of the flock, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought in his offering of grain, and Abel brought in his offering from the first fruits of his flock, from the firstlings of his flock. And so we see that, you know, Cain has this um, wheat chaff, or whatever those things are called. Some of those things are called sheaves, that's the word. He brings in the sheep, but Abel brings the lamb. And why is that? Because that's actually what has been demonstrated to them by God himself. And as a new sin, God slew the animal to cover their sin. And so God established the blood sacrifice because when blood is taken, um, it, it causes the lifeblood. So in the blood is the life. And so Abel is understanding what God's plan is. And you say, well, you know, Cain, why is this so hard on Cain? Like, what was he supposed to do? He's a farmer. He doesn't have the, he doesn't take care of flocks. So he could have made a trade with Abel. Or he could have gotten, I'm sure Abel would have given him a lamb. So it tells you what's going on in the heart of Cain. I'll do it my way, not God's way. And that is a huge problem. If God's not happy, have you ever heard people say this? Well, if God doesn't like the way I live, then he needs God. I've heard that plenty of times. You know, if I'm not acceptable to God this way, then you know what kind of God is he? But he's a God who's provided a way out of our problem of sin, and his way is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so he sets up the blood sacrifice to point toward the sacrifice 
of his own beloved son. And so Abel participates in that way, but Cain refuses to. And it says that God had no regard for the um, offering of Cain. And how did Cain respond in repentance? In changing? No. Even though he knew this, and even though he was given opportunity, instead he became very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Like, what, what's the problem? Like, why are you doing this? It's not that God doesn't know that he's calling on Cain, just like he did of Adam, to confess. Cain refuses to confess. And God said, If you do well, in other words, if you turn around from your ways, will not your countenance be lifted up? Like, it will help you. It won't just be that you do the right thing, you'll feel good about it. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master. And that desire is not just a little desire. That's like a hungry, ravenous kind of desire is just what's incorporated in that word. And so sin is crouching at the door, waiting to really to devour us. And so... Um, Cain, instead of repenting, instead of listening to this, he turns around and he tells Abel this. And so when they were in the field, like he tells Abel what God says. And I can imagine what Abel would have said back to Cain. You know, here, take a lamb. And Cain's going, I'll need a lamb. Give me that knife. And he slits the throat of Abel. And Abel dies. And God calls Cain out on it. And he says, you know, what have you done? Where is it? Where is Abel? And Cain says, I don't know, am I supposed to keep track of him? Well, of course, we know full well. And God says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The ground is now polluted by murderous blood. The first murder. And so Cain says, well, you know, and God says, you now are going to be banished. You could have turned around. You could have repented. And even now, Cain could have repented. But he doesn't. And God says, you're going to be banished. And he will no longer be used and be sent as a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And the ground is not going to produce for you like it did before. And Cain says, oh, the punishment is too much for me to bear. If I go out into the world, like I could be murdered by anyone. Can you imagine this murderer is worried about being murdered? That's what happens when we sin is that we assume that everybody else is like us. And he says, you know, I'll be murdered. And God says, no, he says, I will put my mark on you. Now the mark is not to so much to preserve pain as it is that God is saying that he's the one who's going to control what happens to pain now. And so God is the one who um, is ruling. And he is the one who protects man. So the line of um, Cain, then, you know, like, he's now off in, in wandering and a vagrant, and he has, he gets married with children. And uh, we follow his line down, and you see that Cain goes to Lamech. And uh, let's read what we learn about Lamech in uh, verse 23 of chapter 4. That, like, this is, you know, after Cain. Um, generation. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah. Now, this is the first account of polygamy. 
So this is what's happening with Cain's line. It's turning into a polygamous line. And he says, Adam Zilla, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. The pain is avenged sevenfold, and Lamech, seventy-sevenfold. And so what Lamech is saying is, you know, that guy made me mad, so I killed him. Good for me. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm in control. So you see this murderous intent that's there. And he even kills a child, a boy, excuse me. So I killed him. And he's not saying this in a, a terrible way or, you know, I'm going to be punished, I'm afraid kind of way. He's saying it in a boastful, prideful kind of way. Nobody messes with this guy, is what he's saying. And um, so he has no regard for marriage and he has no regard for life. And the reason that we're bringing that out is to see what's happening to the line of pain. Whereas on the other hand, um, God gives Adam and Eve another child, and his name is called Seth. And God's grace and mercy is going to come to the line of Seth. And we see that God is a gracious and merciful God. He will preserve mankind, and he's going to preserve mankind through this godly line of Seth. Um, verses 25 to 26. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, i.e. the righteous one, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we see this line of Seth is calling upon the name of the Lord. And we're going to follow this line of Seth and see God's grace and mercy. Chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So, although Seth is of the godly line, it's not his perfection, it's because he's born in the likeness of Adam, which is now sinful Adam, but it's because he is a righteous one, counting on the promise that God gives of a redeemer. That's actually what makes us righteous. It's not our deeds. It's worshiping the Lord. It's believing the things that the Lord said. And so calling on the name of the Lord tells us by knowing God's name that they have knowledge of the Holy One. Their understanding who God is. Do you know the name of God? The name that he's given to us in his word that is his. Jehovah, I am, Yahweh. And we'll look at that when we look at Moses. But he's also given us many other names. You know, Jehovah said to me, the Lord, the righteous one. Um, you know, there's so many, Jehovah Jireh. Uh, so many of the names of God are given to us in these different events that happen. And he says, if you know my name, then you will run into it. Because my name is a strong power. And the righteous run into it. And they are kept safe. And so, um, when they call on the name of the Lord, it tells you they have knowledge of the Holy One and worship him. Now, Adam and Eve, in the next 800 years that they lived, had a lot of children, like a lot. They were very fruitful. And so the place is very populated. The earth is getting quite populated. Um, but Seth's line is the one that we follow. And God's promise of a redeemer is going to come through Seth. So after um, a while, he has Enoch. 
and you can see the generations that come. But Enoch is in the year 622 from creation. So about 600 years after the creation of Adam and Eve comes Enoch in the line of Seth. And um, he's the one who gives the first prophecy that comes from man. Now, there's been prophecy from God. Now we're going to see the first prophecy that comes from man. If you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And we say, that's a prophecy right there, by the way. We go, well, how about a prophecy? Like most um, many of the prophets that we read about that you know come later, they name their child after the prophecy that God gives them to the people, and so you'll see that with um, you know quite a few of the of the different prophets. Isaiah is an example. They will name their child from the prophecy that they're to get, and so um, he names his son Methuselah, which means after me it comes. And the it is referring to the flood. And so um, he gives that prophecy, the prophecy of the judgment of God that's coming in the flood. And if you go, well, you know, I'm not so sure Enoch is a prophet, turn with me to Jude, you know, the last book before the book of Revelation, one page, so it's not that easy to find. And in Jude, Verses 14 to 15, there's only one chapter. So verses 14 and 15, I want to read these things to you that it says about Enoch. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they had done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So we see in this passage that Enoch is given, um, this isn't the judgment of the flood. Methuselah was the judgment of the flood. This is referring to the judgment when Jesus Christ returns to earth in the second coming. Because it says that he comes with his thousands of his holy ones. That's speaking about the second coming. And so Enoch interestingly, was given the two major judgments. The judgment of the flood, which is really pointing to the final judgment when Jesus returns and um, in due time, the great white throne judgment of God. And so we see that um, that those two prophecies were given to Enoch. So we say, well, how do you know that Methuselah, after me, it comes is referring to the flood? Well, Methuselah, have you ever heard the old Methuselah? The reason that we use that term is because Methuselah is the oldest recorded man on earth. 969 years he lived. That was the longest that any had ever lived. And it's almost like a thousand years that he lived. Can you imagine living a thousand years? Like a thousand years ago, we would not have been sitting here and we would not be wearing these clothes. Thousand years ago, it's sort of like the medieval days, and so um, he lived a thousand years, indicating the grace of God. And the year that Methuselah died was the year that the flood came. So that's 
So here's God, our gracious God, who gives another thousand years of these godly men preaching one generation after another that are preaching and telling about a Redeemer to come, reiterating the promise that was given to Adam and Eve, and calling man to repentance. But instead of repenting, man gets worse and worse and worse. And yet God is forbearing. He's long-suffering. And he pulls off the flood in the hope that some will come. And so um, it's not till after Methuselah when he's 369 years old, another 600 years old, but when he's 369 years old, his long Bible, then he has um, his grandson is born. And his grandson's name is Noah. And um, Noah's father is Lamech, who's a, a different Lamech than the guy out of Cain's line. Um, I don't know why they don't have more names, but apparently back then they had a lot of the same names like we do. And so um, Lamech had Noah. And Noah, like Lamech, is the prophet too because of what he says about Noah, what he, the name that he gives Noah. And the name that he gives Noah if you know me, is um, rest. It means Noah means rest. It means it comes from the word Naham, which is comfort. That word is comfort, and it's not like you know comfort like the soft bed. It's comfort in terms of comfort for God's people towards Him, bringing rest from sin, bringing rest from the penalty of sin. And now being able to rest in who Jesus is. So that's what Noah's name means. And it's a reference to Jesus, who is our Sabbath rest. It tells us in Hebrews 4, um, verses 9 and 10, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one, meaning Jesus, who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So in other words, Jesus died on the cross and rested from his work. He completed his work. That's another um, nuance of that word. He completed his work on the cross, and he is at rest now with the Father. And we will enter into that rest, and even now have entered into his rest if we are believers in Jesus Christ. But the world um, in Noah's day, I'll go back to Genesis 6, um, verses 1 to 2, um, it tells you it's like wild and chaotic. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And so there's this, like this picture of these strong men that just do whatever they want to do, and they do whatever is right in their own eyes, and they're you know taking these women and having children by them, and uh, they're just, you know, ruling themselves in this wild and chaotic way. And so um, this is how man goes. The end is the, the probation period, though, is coming. Verse 3. Um, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. So what God is saying here is that I am not going to strive with men anymore. 
And the word strive doesn't mean so much against. It means that I will not rule anymore with man. So up until this point, mankind has not been given the law. That's not going to come for a while. He's been given a conscience. He's been given God's image. Like all of us, believer or not, are made in the image of God. All of us, believer or not, have a conscience. But this is what man's conscience does. It doesn't follow after the ways of God. And so um, the wild, chaotic world that they're living in, like it's very civilized. Like we get this idea that they're living like, you know, crazy people that are like cavemen. That isn't what it's like. It would be very civilized by now. It talks about how they have musicians and foragers and, um, you know, just a lot of stuff happening. And for all we know, there could have even been technology like we have. Like we don't know, because it's all been destroyed in the flood. But man lived for a long time. Hey, if you had another 500 years to live, what you could, like you get to retire still at 65. <laughs> <laughs> So the rest of the time is spent creating things and thinking and learning and figuring stuff out and realizing, oh, this doesn't work. Well, it's okay. I've got another 400 years to figure it out. Like, there's a lot of time. So they would have been very developed and um, also very smart. Like, you know, the more generations out from Adam, the less smart we are. I, don't, I know that we don't think that, but it's the truth. And uh, so they would have been, you know, had great brains that worked really well. And so, um, but the end of the probation period has come where God no longer will rule through men's conscience. And it's not like this is a surprise to God. It's not like um, he didn't know all this was going to happen. So God's um, point here is that man's conscience will not preserve man. And how often we are given that line out in the world. You know, if we would all just get our act together, if we just do the right thing, we can do this. Like, we are strong when we are together. The problem is, it actually isn't in our heart to do that. That is a problem. And our conscience in unredeemed man is not going to preserve mankind. And even redeemed man has a difficult time of walking the straight walk. So, that's the fact. And so man's ability, man's desire, is never going to be able to preserve mankind. And actually, the whole problem is not about doing good. It's about having that heart for God. That's actually where redemption comes, when Jesus is our one and all. Then our focus is on him, and we depend on him for salvation. So verse 5 of chapter 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so um, it says, I just want us to turn back to Jude. Who would have guessed that Jude is actually a parallel passage of Genesis? <coughs> Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And down to verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your lust feet, 
when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They're plowed without water. In other words, they have the promises, but they don't have any fulfillment. They're carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, like autumn trees should be bearing fruit, but they're without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. You know how the foam is left after the, the waves recede. And they cast up their shame like that. Wandering stars. So the wandering stars are um, when the ships would be out using the stars for navigation. And the wandering stars are really, as we understand now, the planets. And they would be following these planets that move. They're not stationary. And so they misguide the captain of the ship. So these evil people are like those wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And so that's the people of Genesis 6. And surprise, surprise, they're still amongst us. You can ask them, but when we think, well, why is that? So, so when we read in verses 6 to 7, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so the understanding here is not that God is like, I wish I hadn't done that. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that he was grieved. And it's not that God made a mistake. It's not implying that he made man and he shouldn't have done that, or that he made man this way and he shouldn't have done that. It's also not implying that he is surprised at the cause of this judgment, that he's surprised that man has gone this way. He's known this. Before he created us, he knew what we would be like. He knew that we would choose to follow after Satan and believe Satan. He knew that all along, and yet, and his great love for us. This is our understanding of his love. Even knowing this, he created us, knowing what it would cost, knowing that this would be the cause of Jesus' death for us. And so even knowing all this, he created us because he actually loved mankind. But Satan hates mankind because we are the apple of God's eye. And so, um, so he's a, God, it's not showing that he's sorry um, in the sense that he made a mistake or that you know he was surprised by this and oh, what have I done? It's showing us when it tells us in the scriptures that he was sorry, it's showing how God responds meaningfully to the developing circumstances that are happening in history. God does grieve with us, just like Jesus wept in, with uh, Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus. Not that Jesus didn't know he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but Jesus, God, has compassion with us, and um, the sorrow comes out of this grief. Verse 8, but Noah, I love when it says but in the scripture, all this terrible stuff, but God, and here we have but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that found favor, just like Mary found favor um, in the eyes of the Lord and was given the privilege of carrying Jesus. So
So Noah found favor. And that isn't based on Noah's merit. It isn't based, you know, Mary, it wasn't her merit. It was, it's actually God's grace. That's what favor means. When you see the word favor, it's talking about grace. And it's God's grace on Noah. So, um, but Noah was given grace in the eyes of the Lord. So it's not because of his works. It's simply because of the grace and mercy of the Lord God. And so thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So, you know, God's going to give him plans about the ark, but Noah's going to do it. Because Noah is a good guy, it's because actually God is gracious to Noah, and Noah's response is to obey God. So it's not like, get your act together, and then maybe God will have grace on you. It doesn't work that way. God has grace on you, and as a result, we act in obedience toward him. It doesn't mean that we live perfectly, but we know for sure when we go astray. And, we, and the godly person doesn't try to justify it, but steps up to it and repents and turns back into the will of God. And that's what we are all called. We all have those things that happen. So it's all with all of us. His mercy rec, um, reckons us as righteous, and in obedience, we follow after him. So Genesis 7, I'm going to just go right down to the flood account. Uh, Genesis 7, 13 to 24, I'm going to read through this, and it's just the account of the flood. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah, by two, to all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. And what I wish I had now, which was on the slides, was the picture of the ark. And we have in our heads, and I just want to get this out of our head right now. We have a picture of the children's sort of little theme, you know, the giraffes are sticking their necks out, and like their necks would come off if they did that. Because this flood is not like it's pictured in children's books. It's crazy. It's violent. It's not just, oh, the rain is coming down, and for 40 days it just got higher and higher, floating up. No, it's like, <laughs> and it's coming up out of the deeps, and the ground is splitting open, and the, it's spewing out um, not just water, but plasma. And the whole earth is turning upside down, and this is the catastrophic event that's pictured here. So when we read this, we're not supposed to be reading this gentle little rain coming down and ugh, ugh, who would like rain for 40 days? If it rained for 40 days here, would it be that big a flood? No, because it says that the deep is opening up, the fountains of the deep are opening up, and that the sky are opening up. Like it's just like crazy world. And if they were to stick their heads out of the ark, they would lose their lives. And so there's this narrow band and this huge, huge ark. And if you, um, I would suggest you go on Answers in Genesis and look at the ark that they had built. It's a replica of the ark as much as they can figure out. And I have the video of how they built this thing. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's like so huge. And, um, you know, it took us 
a full day to walk around inside and even then we hadn't seen everything. So it's like huge. And they have this narrow band of 18 inches at the top for you know air and light and a little bit of exchange. But even that was built in such a way so that you wouldn't you know tip over and the arc is built so it will go like this and not flip all over. So like that's the picture. Then the, verse 17, then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. This is not a local flood. If you have learned that, just dispel that idea, because that's not the biblical account. It's a worldwide flood and covers all the mountains over all the earth. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth in all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animal, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth one hundred and fifty days. It's not like after forty days they got off the ark. It's going to be some time after that before the flood really starts to subside. And actually, um, you know, Becky's uh, um, lecture on the flood shows how <coughs> the earthquakes have gotten and the volcanoes have gotten smaller. So the, the earthquake is the after effects of the flood you're still feeling today. That's how violent the flood was. So when we have volcanoes and earthquakes, there's still the earth moving as a result of the flood that happened so many thousands of years ago. So can you imagine living through that? There is no way that even that ark would have survived if God's hands had not been on them. That is the only way that they survived. And so God's hand was on that ark that would have to be within the ark. Ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation except in Noah's day in the ark. And there is no salvation for all mankind except through Jesus Christ. So um, we move on then to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the cattle and all that were with him in the ark. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. But God remembered Noah. Probably God forgot about Noah. God has had his hand on Noah and on that ark through all of this. The word remembered, as we've talked about before, is taking action on what he sees. And so the Lord is taking action now on Noah. And what's going to happen to him? So the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, restrained by God. 
And you go down to verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So that's a year and 10 days later from when they went on to the ark. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. And so God preserves them. And down to verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So if you read the whole account, you would know that he took seven of each of the clean animals. And they probably would have had offspring during that year time as well. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, so that soothing aroma is not like God needs to be pacified. It's saying Noah's doing the right thing. And his sacrifice is pointing to the sacrifice of my beloved son. And so that soothing aroma is like peace between God and man. And so um, uh, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, so the Lord is making covenant with himself here. And if he says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And so we see the link between um, the creation covenant and the redemption covenant. It is God who maintains its creation, and it's God who brings um, salvation through redemption in Jesus Christ. So God is binding himself to this until um, the time of consummation comes when Jesus returns. And so we have this covenant that he gives us in verse 8, of chapter 9. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the waters of the flood. So um, God will not destroy the earth again in that same manner. But he says, I'm going to give you the sign of the covenant. Now this sign is very important. And if you've noticed, there is a group in the world who have tried to take this sign as their own and to mark it, you know, in their own way. But this is what God tells us is the sign. And he says, I... It's a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature. So all creation is in this covenant um, for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And so we know that when it rains, when the clouds are full with the water, and it's going to descend, that God sends his bow, what we now call the rainbow, he sends his bow as a reminder. Now, for many, many years, that, I didn't understand that rainbow. Until, like, I mean, it was nice and, you know, pleasant, and yeah, God's not going to give a pot again. But it means much more than that. The bow is actually, that is the correct word. Rainbow is kind of added in there. And in Revelation, you see it's called the rainbow. But bow is the correct word because it's the same word.
carries the battle bow, like you know, bow and arrow kind of bow. And so what God is saying is that he has put his bow in the heavens as a covenant. And when we see that rainbow, we're to understand the warrior's bow against man has been put down in terms of blood. He will not bring a flood again. And he makes that promise by showing us the warrior's bow that's resting there. And every time it rains, if we look for it, if the conditions are right, we see that bow in the heavens. And so um, I just want us to look quickly at Revelation 4, verses 2 and 3. And this is um, in the throne room of God. And listen to this. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. This is God Almighty. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And so God, even in the, in the final judgment, is reminding us of the judgment that came at the flood. So when we see the flood, this is meant as a warning to us. What is the purpose of the flood? Like they were so bad that God had to clean up the world and start all over again? No, because sin came again. And what we see is that that sinful man came once more through Noah's line. Like right away we have the problem with Ham, Noah's son. So right away it starts up again. So it's not about cleaning up the earth and starting all over. It's actually sent to us as a warning. And Peter makes it clear. I just want to read to you um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days, that's our days now, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Like, where is the second coming? He hasn't come. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, since, you know, our generations before died, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And Peter says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, i.e. creation, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which... The world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And so Peter says the flood is a reminder, it's a warning to us that judgment, the final judgment, is coming. And too often we don't teach this because nobody likes to hear about judgment and sin and death and all these things, or hell. But it's a warning that is given to us. And we are very negligent not to take of that warning. So Peter warns us of it, and God gives us a promise in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so um, we see that God has a plan um, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So we see that God has, um, he has the promise of the new heavens and the new earth that are coming. And he has promised us that judgment is coming, and judgment now may be sitting heavy on your heart. 
Maybe you are feeling the judgment of God is descending on you. But God, in his mercy and grace, has provided a way out. And that way out is through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he loves and sent because he loves us. And so even in judgment, we see the beauty of God. Even in the flood, we see the rainbow. And even on the throne of God, when he sits on the great white throne of judgment, we will see that bow. And it will remind us of God in his judgment has a way out. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he gives to each one of us the choice to believe the lies of Satan, which are many, they are profuse, and they are convincing, or to believe God, who says very simply, there is one way of salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ our <coughs> And any who believe in his name will have eternal life. And so I would urge you to take heed. The warning has been given to us. And the next time we see the heaviness of the clouds and the bow, to remember that God lays down his judgment bow on us who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We do thank you, O Lord, for all your goodness to us. And Lord, we do thank you that you have given us, even in judgment, even though we are deserving of that, and we are deserving of being banished from your sight, that you and your great love and your mercy have provided a way that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have that relationship again with you. And Lord, I pray for all those here who have made that commitment already, that they would remember your promises and walk in them in obedience. And Lord, for those who have not yet really come to understand that or to believe that, I would just pray for them, that they would this day see the salvation that you give. For you have told us, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not some other day in the future. We have no idea how long we will live or what we have in store for us. But Lord, you do. And you are calling us for that day of salvation today. And I would just pray that all of your people would be responding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.